Uh, good morning, River Tree. So glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, I'm Ross. I'm the lead pastor here teaching on Sundays and just uh, delighted to be with you. Uh, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have your Bible, turn there. Uh, but let me tell you, uh, as you get there, let me tell you a few things about kind of what we do on Sunday mornings, uh, maybe what you've already experienced up to this point or, or what's waiting for us at the end of the services. One of the things that, uh, that we do uh, within our gatherings is create a moment kind of halfway through where we stand and we welcome one another, and, uh, and you've already done that, and it's the desire that we have at church just to make sure that you know that we are really glad you're here. Uh, I, people coming into a, a church like this can sometimes want to be uh, an, uh, anonymous and, and not be recognized in the beginning, but it doesn't take very long before uh, everybody hopes that they'll see somebody they know, uh, that somebody might know their name and that their story is important. And so we want you to know that you matter. And so that moment for us to shake hands and greet each other is just a chance for us to say hello and that we're glad you're here. And at the end of the service here in just a few minutes, uh, as we conclude, uh, there are gonna be men and women on either side of the stage here at the South Campus and at the main campus that would love to just pray for you. Uh, they'd love to be an encouragement for you. Uh, if you've made it this far into the Sunday morning and haven't spoken to anybody and just wanna leave with a new friend and a, a new acquaintance, uh, these men and women are available at the end of the service and would love uh, to connect with you, love to be an encouragement with you. Some of you are here uh, because this prayer team specifically prays uh, that you would be here and there'd be something about this service that would touch your heart and would be exactly what God wants to share with you today. Uh, and so know that those men and women are available as we conclude and give you a chance to just respond uh, to what you might sense God doing in your own heart this morning. As we've made our way through the Gospel of Mark, uh, this particular passage takes a turn, and it, it begins to move us in a way that Mark is kind of picking up speed. And so uh, there's a, a moment within my childhood that I want to use as a reference point for you as we read this passage together and, and kind of understand maybe what God has for us this morning. So I'm a product, my, my childhood is a product of the late 70s and the 80s. And before reality television kind of took over, uh, my life was built around the watching of game shows. And so many of you may still have your favorite game shows from the match game uh, to $25,000 pyramid, uh, newlywed game, uh, tic-tac-doe. There's just, they're numerous. There's, there's more than you can probably recall. But my favorite game show, and it still is today in existence, is The Price is Right. And if you love this show, it would come on like 10 a.m. in the morning till 11. Uh, we would in the summertime, that was like, we would go swimming afterwards, like we would eat breakfast before, like it was kind of locked into my morning rhythm and schedule. And I just love that moment when that strategic $1 bid, right, uh, kind of comes through and to the bewilderment of everybody, they've overpriced, but this one person bids a dollar and ends up on, uh, up on the stage. And the game that they play is this kind of little happy little hiker that's kind of climbing the summit. And every time he takes a step, it's because you've missed, you know, the difference between what you think the real price is and what the actual price is. And, you know, you know it's, there's a lot of, you know, trauma there as he kind of plummets to his yodeling death just off and then it's the showcases, you know, where you finally see boats and trips and cars. And if you are close enough to your showcase, you can actually win both showcases. It, it's an amazing show. <laughs> and it, it, it taps into what we do at a very early age. And it's this idea of assessing value. What is something worth? And, and it's this 
kind of assessing a value of, of appreciating and, and creating a sense of what is something worth that, that is in all of us. And we continue to do this. And I want to show you a passage this morning that, that offers us this perspective of what's, what is something worth? And can something be worth differently, have a different value depending on the person, depending on the person who's, who's involved, depending on their perspective? And that's what this passage begins to offer us, is it brings us this idea that there's something within this passage that people are assessing, that people are kind of connecting value to it. And the value is different depending on the person. So let me show you this. In Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wage and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my, hip, on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the, word, the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, where we've been through the Gospel of Mark over the past few Sundays and, and weeks is Jesus has made his way through uh, kind of that, that ministry of miracles, kind of that public ministry where he's been teaching and moving from village to village, town to town, and he's made his way into Jerusalem, that triumphant entry where he was heralded really as, as, a, as a Messiah, as, as a kind of king by the people. And Jesus makes his way into the temple where the Passover uh, has begun to, people are becoming to pilgrimage their, their way to Jerusalem. So it's filled with tens of thousands of people buying, selling, changing money. Uh, the sacrifices are there for people who've made long trips to be able to buy something at the temple. And as Jesus walks in, the, the chaos and the confusion and uh, what he said was to be a f his father's house, a house of prayer. Jesus begins to kind of route the temple, turns over the tables, runs the money changers out. He, he pretty much stops the entire temple observance. And in that moment, Jesus really kind of declared himself, revealed himself as a threat to the religious system. That the chief priests and the elders and the leaders of the day looked at Jesus as someone that they needed to get rid of. That if Jesus continued this kind of ministry, if he continued to do the kinds of things that he was doing, that he would kind of undermine and undo the very things that this whole community and the religious leaders and this religious system had built their lives around for centuries. Jesus then begins to spend some time within the temple and he's teaching. And at every step of the way, 
the religious leaders send somebody to Jesus to challenge him and to, to debate with him, to test him, hoping that they might undermine his popularity and at best have him arrested and killed. As Jesus leaves the temple, we looked at this last Sunday, Jesus walks out with his disciples and he tells them about the temple, about in all of its magnificence and all of its glory and all of its architectural wonder that not one stone will be on top of another, that this temple will be destroyed that what they have come to know as the center of their communal, religious, political, economic life, the temple, that the temple is going to be destroyed. With that news, Mark transitions us here to Mark 14, and Mark 14 from this point on kind of begins to pick up speed because what's next for Jesus is the cross. And each of these venues, these kind of moments where Jesus is talking and sharing, Mark is going to continue to weave in this moment of what's, hap- what's coming for Jesus. It is now, kind of Jesus is now kind of set, the, the, the direction of his life is now set towards the crucifixion. And it's this moment where Jesus is in this, this small town at the house of Simon the leper, and we don't really know who that is. We assume that it's somebody that Jesus healed. And, and Jesus is in this home, and there are really two central characters within this story that Mark's, Mark wants us to see, and one is Judas. He wants to see Judas as one of those 12, kind of the, the, the inner circle, one of, the, one of those that has been with Jesus for years now, part of the ministry, seeing the work. And yet we also see that by the end of this section, we see something happening within Judas, that Judas is going to betray Jesus, that Jesus, Judas is looking for a way to give him over to the high priests. The other character that we get introduced to is this woman. She's not supposed to be there. It would have gone against social norms for this woman to be within this setting, but she comes in. And what you begin to notice is she's there to do something. And it's this kind of this, this, the actions of her life that Mark begins to pin that Mark does not want us to forget that Jesus references. And as she comes in, she comes in with this alabaster jar full of nard. And nard is this uh, oil, this aromatic oil. And it's, it's made, it's produced from a flower, a blooming flower within the Nepal, India region. And so to say nard was to mean this is something that came from a long way away, meaning this is not something that you could easily get. It would be difficult to have. In other words, it's expensive. And you hear that too, the critics that are watching this woman kind of pour this oil, this perfume out on Jesus say that, man, what a waste. She, that, that, that alabaster jar, that, what the nard in that is, is expensive, a year's worth of wages. Not only that, the, the, the perfume is contained within an alabaster jar and it would be something that would be sealed. It, it, it wouldn't be something that you could just kind of on your, you know, on your date night, kind of take a little spritz of that. It would be something that was kind of a one-time use. To, to open that up was to break the jar. So the alabaster jar and the nard were something that you need to hear. Is like, people are watching. This is something important. This is not something normal. She lives within the town of Bethany. Bethany means house of the poor. So she is living in an impoverished area, likely impoverished herself, or at least living at a modest living lifestyle. And she brings in this alabaster jar full of pure nard. It's, it's a family heirloom. It, it's, it's something of incredible value that has likely been passed down within her home. It's something that was there in case of emergency, in case the family was in a real financial crisis. It's the nest egg for the family. And she breaks this open 
and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. It, this means a lot. This is significant. And Mark's gospel kind of offers us a contrast here of Judas and this woman. This woman, she's an outsider. Judas is an insider. This woman is moving closer to Jesus, more near him, intimate with him. Judas is on the outside, moving towards betrayal. This woman takes this alabaster jar full of very rare, very expensive oil worth a year's salary. And what is that? What would that be for us? 25, 50,000, 100,000? $250,000 a year. She takes this and she breaks it open and she pours it out on Jesus. And Judas, on the other hand, is about to trade Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver, the gospel tells us. 30 pieces of silver. It's a reference from Exodus of the amount of money someone was owed. If an owner had a slave and that slave was killed by someone else's animal, then that owner of the slave, for the loss of the slave, was due 30 pieces of silver. It's the amount of money that you could give for the lowest ranking human life. That's what Judas is going to sell Jesus for. Judas is an expression of, Judas is an expression or is kind of presented to us in an expression of utility. Meaning, what does Jesus benefit? How does Jesus help? How is Jesus useful? And the woman, on the other hand, is represented to us an expression of beauty. And that's what I want you to hear this morning and want to work on. Like, what happened with Judas? He, he's been with the inner group. He's been part of the 12. He has seen all of the miracles that the rest of them have. But something in Judas is now gone deviant than everybody else. He's, he's charting his own course for something else. And I would offer you this. What has Jesus been saying? You know, Jesus has been offending all of the religious leaders of those in high regard, those in people of power. Judas is watching that. Jesus is routing the temple, talking about its destruction. Like, if Judas had this idea that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, was going to come and be a leader for Israel, was going to throw off Roman oppression. Jesus isn't talking like that anymore. Jesus is now talking about his death, not the destruction of Rome. And so whatever Judas signed up for, whatever he thought Jesus was going to accomplish within his work, within his ministry, like it is, seems to be taking a different turn. And Judas is aware of that. And so for Judas, the idea is, well, I'm going to get out now, and I'm going to get out of this what I can before it's all over. And so Judas begins to work through this idea of now 30 pieces of silver, the minimum price owed to someone for a slave, Judas is willing to cash Jesus in for that. In other words, for Judas, Jesus is worth more to him dead than alive. For Judas, things are utilitarian. How does this person how does this situation benefit me? How is it useful to me? How can I get something out of this relationship, whatever I can, while I can? And listen, we do the same thing. We determine value. We determine cost. 
we determine benefit within our relationships, within our friendships, within our work, within our schools. We determine what is the cost of this and what is the benefit to me. And most of the things in our life, we are involved in those, we relate to them in a way in which how are they helping me accomplish the things that I want? How are they useful to me? How are they benefiting me? And Judas believed certain things about Jesus and now it doesn't look like Jesus is going to be able to accomplish those things for him. It doesn't look like he's going to benefit him. That thing that Judas wanted to see more of, that thing that Jesus, Judas wanted to see something great happen, it seems to be turning. So Judas is now calculating the utility of Jesus. What can I get out of him? I'll believe. I'm in if it works out for me, if it accomplishes the things that I want it to accomplish. I'll believe I'm in if I get to marry the person I want to marry. I'll believe I'm in if, if this kind of creates a certain health benefit for me. There's a certain prosperity that comes to my way. There's a certain spiritual blessing that I could have. Judas is assessing Jesus in this way of what is he worth and what is the benefit to me? The woman on the other hand is approaching Jesus altogether different. She sees something different. She's moving towards Jesus, not in this utilitarian view. She's looking at Jesus, not for what he can do for her, but what she can give to him. It's stark. She's come to see something, to believe in something about who Jesus is so that she takes the family security and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. She has assessed Jesus, but she has come to a different place of value. She's come to a different place of worth for him. And so I just want to invite you into that moment that if you were in this house in Bethany, what would you see if you saw this woman pour $100,000 out just, just to be given over? Would it be a little extravagant? Would there be something you say like, that's a little much. Don't know if I would have gone that far. What would you see? Because here's the deal. There are various people in the room and they see something different. I got to go to a friend's house not too long ago and I had heard that this friend was, um, had some really special local art that he had collected. And as I walked in the door, it didn't take me but just a couple moments to see some of these, I mean, sizable, impressive pieces that were, you know, on the wall. And, and as I looked at them, I just realized, like, these things are really unique. I'd never seen, like, art quite like this before. It wasn't just kind of paint on canvas. There were, like, different mediums. There was wood. There was rock. There was glass. There was, like, a doorknob over here and a musical instrument over it. Like, it was, like, this, you know, was, I, I don't know much about it, right? You can see just by me talking about it. I don't, I don't know what to call it. All I know is it, it was expensive. Like, I, I know enough about art to go, like, that probably cost a lot. And I began to think to myself, would I buy that? Why did he buy that? What is it about this piece that he saw that he thought, I need this. I want to see this all the time. 
I want this in my home. In my home. What, what made him look at this and see something, see something beautiful in it? I read an article on how do you value art? Like, how do you come up with the worth or the price or assess value for art? And this article said this. It says, the major prerequisite for collecting art and design is an innate desire for the object. While historical, critical, and even social context may enrich the story behind an object and explain its conceptual or physical production, it is in the initial connection between viewer and object that sets tone and dialogue. In other words, the value of it is in what you see. This, this innate inward connection that you have with it creates value, creates something more. In this dinner party, Jesus said this. He said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Jonathan Edwards was born in the 1700s, and he is known as America's greatest uh, kind of Christian pastor, teacher, theologian of, of, of the, the more modern era. And if you've ever heard of Jonathan Edwards, you perhaps have run across his famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But what's maybe unknown about him, what I didn't realize about Jonathan Edwards, is he is one of the most prolific writers in the last few hundred years on the topic of God's beauty. He's written more on God's beauty than you might know. And he said that there's a difference. There's a difference between kind of real Christians and, and religious people. There's a difference in, in those that have a regenerative heart, right, and those that do not. And he says this, that a religious person finds God useful. A Christian finds God beautiful. A Christian finds God beautiful. Now, both people can be obedient. Both the religious person and the Christian can be committed, even surrendered, but the religious person is driven by God. The Christian is drawn, attracted. This is this idea that you begin to see a religious person you know, it can also be desperate for God, but it is this desperation of what God can give of what God can do, of the usefulness of God. You know, the religious person in their eye can see something beautiful, but they then go to God to ask for that beautiful thing. And then when God doesn't bring it, there's a sense that God has abandoned, that we get upset, that we then walk away from God. But a Christian above everything else wants God that God himself is the reward of those who seek him. He's the reward. More than seeking physical safety, more than seeking physical healing, more than having a job that fits with my gifts or being gifts that fit with God's work, whatever it is, it's, it's Jesus, just him. It's God. And the religious person says, you know, Jesus, is that it? Is, is that it? Is that all I get? The Christian says that Jesus is it. That Jesus isn't a means to another thing, that Jesus is the thing. It's him. And this is what we begin to see. 
that there's something about who Jesus is, just the way he is, just who he is, and his character that becomes powerful and emotive and beautiful in our lives. I had a... um, I had this moment even just a couple years ago where I was wrestling with this idea of, you know, can I, can I turn this into something more? Can I, can I create something more than what this is? And here's where that happened. The context of that is I was in uh, Nepal a couple years ago, uh, having a, a really, you know, special opportunity to, to hike through the Himalayas. And I was waking up each morning surrounded day by day with raw, majestic, creative beauty just breathtaking vistas. Waking up and seeing the sunrise on a 27,000 foot mountain, snow-covered mountain peak, valleys that we were walking through, crystal streams, areas, an area of the world that had only been opened up to outsiders for about 20 years. And that's where I was. And this is the thought that came through my mind. This place could use a resort. <laughs> we could do something with this. Like, could you imagine, like, people finally getting to see this? We could helicopter people in, get the supplies in here. Like, this place would be rocking. You could make some money if you put a resort right there. And I had to coach myself through the whole experience of just, just be here. Let's not spin this or work this into something else. Just be present. Take this in. What do you see? Be moved by it. Let this moment kind of sweep you away. Stop, pause, behold. And have you done that? Have you had a moment like that where you were listening to some piece of music and it just kind of took you upward into something and you forgot what time it was and like you just got lost in it for a moment because it was that special, that beautiful, that rare This is what we begin to see. This is this important part that moves in our lives when we no longer are seeking Christ out by his benefit to us, but by just who he is, by just his beauty, his character, his his personhood. It's the moment where you're in God's word one morning and you're just stunned again, where you find yourself within a worship setting captivated, your heart just bursting where you're ruined. And and the thing that you now behold, this treasure that is now before you, begins to make you forgetful of all the other things that you thought were important. That you have it. That you're the man who found the treasure in a field and went out and in your joy sold everything that you had that you might purchase the field that there was a delight and a joy and a lightness that you experienced that changed everything, that you realized in your prayer time that it's not the place where you're petitioning God, it's not the place where you're making asks and requests of God that's your favorite part, it's the place where you praise and contemplate the character of God. That becomes the best part of your prayer time. This is what the important part for us is is that we're no longer mercenaries exchanging services with God, but we're visionaries of his beauty in wonder and awe of who he is. Has there been a moment in your life where you just spent more than you should? Right, has there been a moment in your life where you just gave more than you should? 
It was reckless. You'll admit it. It was extravagant. But you stopped calculating the benefits of, is this pragmatic? Is this utilitarian? And you just abandoned yourself to it. This woman poured out her family savings on Jesus. And the critics around her didn't understand it. They criticized it as reckless and extravagant. And those same critics didn't understand why Jesus died on the cross either. They didn't understand the infinite cost to Jesus. They didn't understand the worth of what God was doing. They didn't understand the sacrifice and the extravagance of Jesus even in that moment and the beauty of who he is. They missed it. If, if you've been in Huntsville long, here's what you're probably doing. You're probably thinking about buying or selling your home or you know somebody that is. It just seems, just seems to be part of uh, where our, our community is at, kind of repositioning and transitioning in different ways. And I get this postcard in the mailbox often by some realtor I don't know, like, hey, guess what? Sold this house in your neighborhood. And my first response is, hey, great. Glad you made a profit. No, that's not what I think. I think, what did you sell the house for? And has it improved my property's value? Right? What was the square footage? What's the going rate? And do I now have more net worth? That, that's what I think. But I asked a realtor friend of mine, I said, what happens when somebody moves into a neighborhood and pays more than the appraised value for that house? Let's say the house is worth $200,000 and somebody moves in and just pays two hundred and fifteen. dollars Because, well, you don't really know always why people do that, but it happens sometimes. And sometimes you don't realize how valuable that house is to somebody more than somebody else. That that house is valuable because two doors down is a relative that they want to be close to. Or something about that floor plan works for their family's needs unlike another house. And so sometimes people will come in and actually pay more than what the appraised value is that other people feel that that house is worth. And over time, what happens is, is a house like that becomes a reference point for all other houses that that now 215 house becomes a new comp that begins to influence what other houses in the neighborhood could go for. And I just started thinking, what about this, this idea that what if the way that you and I ascribed worth and value to Jesus, what if our worship could actually change the landscape of our city? What if the way that you see the beauty of Jesus and esteem him and are captivated by him would actually change your home. Because as you behold something beautiful, as you behold something truly special, rare, treasure, what happens is it kind of pulls you upward in that. What happens if the way that you value Jesus actually increases the value of your neighbor, the value of your work, the value of what you say and what you do, what would it be like for us, this community, to value Jesus in such a way that it begins to raise the water table of worship across our city by beholding him, by being in awe of him again, to see his worth and to have our hearts connected with that, to be captured again. This is what we realize. The critics never understood You know, one of the ways that you can value art is by its rarity. How rare is it? 
will often help you determine what it's worth. Can I offer you this? That a God gave his one and only begotten son for you. That while you were far from God, God demonstrated his love in this. Christ died for you on the cross. A cross that was for you, a death that was yours, and Jesus died your death so that you might experience his life. And he did that for you, and only God could do that. And now, as Christians, we are people who have been moved by the depths of our sin. And we are people who are now in awe of the sufficiency of the cross. And we deeply ponder the eternal security that we now have by actually being standing in the righteousness of Christ, of that being given to us. And it shapes the way we think now because of what we've seen, because the beauty of God, of what we've now understood, what we hold on to, what we're near to, that no matter how much you have, how little you have, that because your greatest need has been met, a God who is now with you and for you, you are rich. You're rich. And the beauty of that changes our hearts. And when our hearts change, our relationships change. Our lives begin to move to a different purpose and to different rhythms. And we find ourselves in a different place now beholding something that is greater than anything else that we've ever seen. You're invited into that to picture Jesus, to see him as somebody who did all of that for the worth of God and for the love of you. It's rare. It's special. And God has made that moment of awe and wonder to be undone and to be moved again available to all of those who say, Jesus, help me see. Help me see who you really are. My Lord, my Savior, you're worth it all. All that I am, I give to you. Let's pray. as we just begin to kind of settle into what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you, reminding you of God's word, Christ's work. God, help us to see Jesus clearly this morning. Help us to see him as this woman did, worthy of all that she had, worthy of her security, worthy of breaking all social norms, worthy of it. She did a beautiful thing. And Jesus, you set aside this moment and says, I want you to keep talking about this. I don't want this moment to be forgotten that wherever the gospel, wherever the good news goes out, I want you to remember this moment. God, help us to know why we're coming to you this morning. Is it because you're useful or is it because you're beautiful? Are we trying to get more from you, Jesus? Asking you to fix our children, fix our marriage, fix me, give me more power, give me more confidence, give me more blessing. God, what is that?
could we just behold you and realize that if we are near you and have you, we have what we need. We have enough. And that if we desire you with all of our heart, if we want you more than anything else, then you are freely ours. Jesus, you are not, you're not the means to another thing. You are our destination, our reward, our treasure. And so God, I pray as we begin to sing and as we begin to make praise out of this moment that what we begin to say and what we begin to sing would resonate within our hearts and allow us again to capture this moment, to behold you, to understand your beauty and love, to be lifted by that and have our lives changed because of who you are. Use this time of worship, Jesus, to do a work in our hearts, each one of us. And for some even in here to be invited in to a new way of seeing Jesus all together as your Lord and as your Savior.